Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it is your first time, if I didn't get a chance to meet you on the way in, my name is John. Uh, I'm lead the pastor around here. I appreciate you guys coming on out and giving us an hour of your time. So today we are in week three of this series that we're calling Take a Stand. And if it is your first time here, what we've been talking about for the last three weeks is the life of Daniel, one of the greatest uh, figures in the Old Testament. And specifically what we are looking at are the various times throughout his life, and it happened on multiple occasions, the various time in Daniel's life that he took a stand for God. And what we're doing is we're sort of looking at his life and, and seeing what would it look like for us in our own lives to take a stand for what's right, in the right way, at the right time, and for the right reasons. So Today, what I want to do with you guys is I want to take a look at what it would look like for us to stand strong in the face of opposition. That when people are sort of coming against us, when forces seemingly are, are sort of coming against us, what would it look like for every single one of us in our lives to stand strong in the face of all of that. Now, to do this, as Adam sort of uh, indicated earlier, we're going to be taking a look at really what might be the most famous story in all of the Old Testament, certainly one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture. It is the story that landed Daniel into what I often call the Sunday School Hall of Fame. And if you are not a Christian, chances are you are familiar with this story, even if you've just heard the name. And obviously we are talking about Daniel and the lion's den. Now, part of the problem with stories like Daniel in the lion's den, and it's sort of like the Christmas story as well, is that if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know this story pretty well. I mean, and so we're tempted often to, when, to, to like kind of check out, oh, we're doing Daniel, okay, I'm going to tune back in next week, maybe we're doing some stuff I haven't heard before. Or we're tempted to sort of skip to the end of the story because we know what the end of the story is, and we like the end. Or we tend to whitewash the details and gloss over some of the more important facets of this amazing story. And I just want us to kind of tap the brakes today, just sort of slow down and try to hear this story as though it were the first time to see if we can pick up on some details that we had never seen or thought about before. Now, up until today, we're thinking about the first two weeks in this series, up until today's story, Daniel had been serving under the king Nebuchadnezzar. You've heard this name. We've talked a lot about him in the last two weeks. Now, since last week, 40 years have gone by. Daniel is now 80 years old, 85 years old, which I think is so interesting because when you think about the story of Daniel in the lion's den, you picture Daniel sort of being a kind of a spry 18-year-old, mixing it up with the lions and tigers down, but he's an octogenarian. He's an older man. So he's 80. And in his life, a new king has now taken over. Nebuchadnezzar is gone. A new king has taken over the empire. And that king's name is Darius the Mede. So we meet Darius. And we begin in verse 1. Darius the Mede decided to divide this new kingdom that he's now in charge of into 120 provinces. And he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. So let's kind of pause right here. Because some of you are actually way more familiar with Darius than you realize. 
I don't know if you've seen this, but many of you will remember the, the hugely blockbuster movie from the early 2000s, 300, okay? Great movie, made every guy in America want to get in shape. That lasted for about two weeks, all right? But, right, I mean, that's when we learned CGI could make muscles and we're all trying to figure out how do I get that in my own life? Anyway, so if you remember, kind of basic plot line of this film, just to kind of refresh the old memory, this guy here, his name was Themistocles, Nice name. And Themistocles was, was a big character in the very beginning of the film, and he was the um, leader, shall we say, of the Athenian army. And in the very opening scenes of 300, it's one of those battle scenes, and, and Themistocles is just running through this, he's fighting the Persian army, running through the army, you know, cutting heads off, blood everywhere, all this kind of stuff. And he is in search for the leader of the other army. Well, he finally makes his way over to the boats and he's leaping impossibly large distances, going from boat to boat in search of the, the leader of the Persian army. And finally in the distance, he spots the other leader of the enemy forces and he takes up a spear, I think it was, and he launches it like a thousand yards, okay? It's never gonna go that far. And he strikes the enemy's leader in the heart, square in the heart. This is Darius the Mede. This is the character from today's story. Now, just to kind of close the loop on 300, the guy holding up Darius the Mede right here, that's his son. And he would later to go on to become Xerxes in the movie, the main enemy of the Greeks, of the Spartans. And he's also in the Bible as well. So the whole plot of this incredible movie 300 is all about this revenge because our boy Darius the Mede was killed in battle. So Darius takes over this new kingdom, which he'll be defending in 300. And he creates all of these new governmental positions. And in the creation of these new governmental positions, the king, it says, also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and to protect the king's interests. So Daniel is now an administrator in this Persian empire. And like everything else that he's done his entire life, he puts his all into it. He puts his heart into it. He does a phenomenal job. God blesses everything that he does because he's been so faithful to God all throughout his life. And we read that Daniel soon proved himself more capable than the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. That's quite a promotion. Daniel is now effectively the prime minister of the most powerful empire in the world. And this guy started off life as a POW in week one when Jerusalem got sacked. So this is a huge promotion, but it will also become a huge problem for Daniel. Because the other two administrators, remember there was three of them, there's sort of a triumvirate, if you will, but the other two didn't get this promotion, they're jealous. They're angry. And in their jealousy, they come up with a plot to take down Daniel. And that is the foundation for the entire story. And one of the things that we learn just right out of the gate, chapter three, I mean, verse three, and, and this is a, an unpleasant truth, but it's one that we really need to be aware of. And that is when, when God raises you up, you gotta expect others to tear you down. It's human nature. I mean, it's jealousy at some level, it's anger. I think there's self-loathing involved in this. And sometimes it's actually a spiritual attack. Now, perhaps maybe you've experienced this 
in your own life. Let's just stick with the promotion analogy. Maybe you got a promotion at work and you worked hard for it. I mean, you busted your hump, you put a lot of hours in, you spent time away from home and you wish you could be at home, but you worked hard and you've landed this promotion and it's the strangest thing because the people around you that you thought would be happy for you, they're now criticizing you. And it's hurtful and it's confusing. And this can happen in all areas of your life. That when we begin to have success in this world, when, when God begins to bless us, when, when uh, he, God begins to move in our lives and elevate us and the things that we're doing, other folks will come to tear us down. There's actually a psychological term for this. It's called the crab syndrome or the crab mentality. I don't know if you've ever been crabbing before. I'm from New Jersey. We like to go crabbing up there, especially in the summertime. You get a little line, put a piece of chicken on it. You're not supposed to use chicken, but that works the best. And you wheel these little crabs up from the bottom. And you throw them into these buckets. Now, once you got the crabs in these buckets, every once in a while, one of the crabs tries to make its way out of the bucket. And like clockwork, the other crabs grab him and bring him back down into the bucket. And it's this idea in the crab syndrome that if I can't have it, you can't have it either. And in life, unfortunately, we all at some point will face this same issue. At an early age, I mean, really early age, my dad taught me a very hard truth, let's call it. He told me that personal success rarely makes others joyful. And you hate to say this. You hate to think this way. But come on, I mean, we all sort of know that this is true. And this is why I sort of feel like this truth really, and I talk about this a lot, but I think this needs to dictate how we act on social media and filter the things that we do and say because it is having a real impact on other people's lives and ultimately even our own. See, when you do well in this world, truth is outside of your parents, outside of your closest and nearest and dearest, very few people are happy for you. And so Daniel in this moment is on the receiving end of this. People are seeing God move in his life. People are seeing God work in his life. They are seeing him being elevated and they are not happy. Take a look. It says, then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way that Daniel was handling government affairs, but they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. I mean, this is like something out of American politics. These guys want Daniel out. So what do they do? They dig for dirt, right? They, they, you know, look through his Twitter feed. Maybe he said something 15 years ago and they can use that against him, okay? Like they, they're looking for skeletons in the closet and they can't find anything due to squeaky clean. It says that he was faithful, always responsible, completely trustworthy. So they concluded, all right, well, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. So clearly based on that, Daniel's faith is famous. He's taken a number of stands. Many of them are quite public. And these guys have figured out that his only vulnerability in this life is through his devotion to God. And so they decide that they're gonna use his faith against him. Now, I think this is interesting because this really dispels a common myth that I think is pervasive, at least in sort of the American church. And it's this idea that if I'm faithful to God, my life will be problem-free. 
Maybe you kind of think this way. If I'm, if I'm serving God, then I shouldn't face any kind of opposition. I mean, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm following Jesus' commands, then life should be easy, right? That's why we're all doing this. If I'm trying to do what's right, if I am doing what's right, then I shouldn't have anybody coming against me. But Scripture is very clear. This is a fallacy. Why? The best way that I could put it is that when you say yes to Jesus, you put yourself on the enemy's radar. That's how it works. And, and, and our enemy is not flesh and blood. I know we think our enemy is like our neighbor. We think our enemy is our boss. That's not your enemy. Scripture is very clear. As a Christian, your enemy are the powers and the principalities of the unseen world. That's a quote. That means Satan and his forces. And whenever you are moving the kingdom of God forward in your life, and it can be as simple as just being obedient to God, that sends shockwaves through the spiritual world. And you can and should expect resistance from the enemy. Whenever you are doing something for the glory of God, and we can bring glory to God in so many ways, not just singing and, and doing, in so many ways, you will face opposition from the enemy. And this isn't something to fear. It's just something to be aware of. And I would go so far as to say is that when you are serving Jesus and you do face opposition, it should encourage you. It should embolden you. It should allow you to know that I'm on the right path. I am doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing. I am facing opposition for serving Jesus. So the enemy strikes Daniel. It says, so the administrators and high officers went to the king. Now they've got their plot. Now they know what they're going to do to bring down Daniel. And they go to Darius, give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. Now, Darius hears this, and he likes the sound of this law. Because this law sort of strokes his ego. Wow, he's not thinking about Daniel at all. He just thinks an entire empire will be praying to me. Hmm, I like that. Now, think about this for a second, because these administrators, they knew that prayer was important to Daniel. That's why they made it illegal, which means they had to have known that Daniel's faith was so strong that he would continue to pray in spite of the law and in spite of the consequences. And I was thinking about this week and I began asking myself a question and I'll just ask it to you guys and see what you think, but how would you fare against the no prayer law? I mean, honestly, I mean, I mean, I mean, if a law were passed that said you can't pray to God in Jesus' name, how many people in your life would pick up a newspaper, read the headlines, and go, oh gosh, John's in trouble. Christina, she's, she's in trouble. Adam, how, I mean, whatever your name, like, they're in trouble. Oh gosh. I mean, really, honestly, let's, like, if your life was threatened by lions, what would you do? Now, as American Christians, I think we'd like to say, like, send me to the lions, right? Mm, send me to the lions. Because we kind of picture ourselves as William Wallace and Braveheart getting sliced open at the end, yelling, you know, freedom. That's how we, but let me tell you something, okay? I have unfortunately seen real footage 
of persecution in the Middle East and other parts of this world. And it is not romantic. It does not look like Braveheart. It's horrific. Often it's lonely. And when I think about Daniel and the lion, Daniel is a real person. Those are real lions. These are not just flannel graphs we put up in Sunday school. When I think about the horrendous nature of Christian persecution going on in the world, even as we speak, as we sit here in an IMAX theater, I don't know how the American Christian would fare. I've got to be honest with you. In fact, I often wonder, has the gift, because it's a gift, of religious freedom in America weakened the Christian faith? or Christians' faiths. Because I don't know if you remember this, but a few years ago, the American church cried persecution when Starbucks changed its Christmas cups. Outrage. They lost their minds because a non-Christian company took snowflakes off a cup and made it, and I'm just here like Coptic Christians over there in Egypt who are getting their heads lopped off going, you got to get a real problem, my friend. You think that, you think this is persecution? Oh, you got another thing coming. I mean, if snowflakes on cups are the biggest issue that we as Americans face, how are we going to face against, how are we going to fare against real evil? Real, in-your-face, lion's den kind of evil. Now, thank God, literally, thank God, that is not a reality for us as Americans. But not to sound dramatic, you just think about global history in the 20th century, and you could see how things go dark very quickly. So the law is passed. And Daniel has a decision to make. What's he going to do? Well, he could decide, number one, to just stop praying. Hey, God, you know, we've been doing this for 80 years. Um, I think I'm just going to take four weeks off. You know, it's like when I think about me being used in this world, I'm much more effective alive than dead. So let's just put a pin in this and we'll circle back in four weeks. He could just stop, right? Second thing he could have done, probably what I would have done. I asked my wife and she said she would have done this as well. Maybe you would do this. He could have given what I'll call the old fake job, right? Just kind of pray with your eyes open. Give him one of these and, you know, but people are looking at you like, you know, what are you doing? Nothing. You praying? No, definitely not. You know, you could, so you could, cause it looks like I'm not praying. Okay. I know I'm kind of doing this, but I'm not doing that. So leave me alone. So you could, you know, give him the old fake job. You could stop praying or you could risk death and remain faithful. And this is what the enemy was hoping Daniel would do. And this is what Daniel was willing to do for his God. Take a look. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem and three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. He didn't miss a beat. I just think there's an important truth that we can learn from this. That is that our first response to trials shouldn't be panic, but prayer. That when we are met with opposition in this world, when we are met with hardship, when we encounter trials, the very first thing that we should do if we want to stand strong is we need to get down on our knees and pray to God. Well, let's be honest because we're all friends here and this won't leave the room. First thing we do is panic. 
In fact, even the language that we use to sort of describe prayer, I think, gives away how little value we put into it. Think about this. You got a situation going on in your life. I don't know what it is. Just some obstacle, some trial, some hardship. We do everything that we can. We do everything that we know how to do. We do everything that's in our power. And when we can't do anything anymore, what do we say? We go, well, all we can do now is pray. We've exhausted our own resources. All we can do now, I guess, is some last ditch, Hail Mary, tried everything else, prayer. I don't know. It's in God's hands now. Whoa, okay. It's like we've forgotten the power of prayer. Maybe we never knew the power of prayer. I don't. But it's like we as Christians have forgotten the fact that we have direct and unlimited access to the creator of the universe who loves us, who wants to hear our prayers. Scripture teaches us that because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. We can walk into his throne room and speak directly to him because of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, we now have access to not only the creator of the universe, but the sustainer of the universe. We have a direct audience with a God who cares about the intimate details of your life. Scripture says that you, God, listen to the longings of those who suffer. You offer them hope and you pay attention to their cries for help. We serve a God who listens to our prayers, who pays attention to our needs, and who delights in moving on our behalf. So no, prayer is not the last thing we do. It is the first thing we do. So Daniel gets word of this decree, and he gets on his knees, and he prays. And don't forget, because we forget this. He's got no idea how the story resolves. He had no idea in this moment if God would save him. All he knew is that for the last 80 years, God had been faithful to him. And so no matter what, he was going to remain faithful to God. If God saves me, I'll trust him. If God doesn't save me, I'll still trust him. And so he prays in spite of the consequences. And the enemy catches him. And they report it back to Darius. Now, hearing this, the king was deeply troubled. And he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He was devastated. You go read it for yourself. He was devastated. He liked Daniel. He was also angry because he now realizes he was tricked. This was just one big ruse to trick Daniel. And you go back and you read the other verses that I haven't put up here. He spends the entire day, morning until night, trying to figure a way to save Daniel from this law. But these guys had him sign it in such a way that this law was irrevocable. He couldn't save Daniel. Even if he was the king, he couldn't do it. Daniel was stuck. So at last, the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. And the king said to him, may your God, and I love this, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. And they rolled the stone over the den. And Daniel, this 80-year-old man, was in there with lions. 
Now, we don't know exactly what happened down there. We just know what didn't happen. We, we, we don't know if Daniel was down there and he was praying. Maybe he was. We don't know if he was down there and, and, and singing. Maybe he was. Maybe he was just hiding behind a rock doing all th- I, We don't really know. But the one thing that we do know is that God showed up and he shut the mouths of those lions all night long. Very early the next morning, we read The king got up and hurried out to the lion's den where he got there. He called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you serve so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions? I mean, imagine the tension in this moment, crying out into this cavern, hearing nothing. All I hear is lions moving around. Maybe he's hearing growls, waiting to hear a response. Finally, Daniel answered, long live the king. My God sent his angels to shut the lion's mouths so that they would not hurt me for I have been found innocent in his sight and I have not wronged you, your majesty. We read that the king was overjoyed, overjoyed. He orders that Daniel be lifted out of the den. It says when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him. Why? Because he had trusted in his God. In Daniel's faithfulness, God was faithful to him. And what's so amazing about this whole story is that Daniel stood for what was right, even when he was unaware of how it would turn out. And by standing strong in his convictions, not only did God bless him, but God was honored in the process. Soon after this, Darius, witnessing this amazing miracle, sends out a decree to the entire empire. And we have record of this letter. In this letter, Darius writes, I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. What an incredible story. So what do you do with it? What's practical? If it's your first time here at DHC, every single week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and just know exactly what to do with what you've heard. Now, what we've seen each week leading up to today is that Daniel is a man of conviction. He continually over and over and over stood for what was right. So let me ask you this. In your life, what convictions are you not willing to compromise? What are those areas in your life that that you're willing to sort of put your feet in the sand, draw that hard line and say, as a Christian, I am not budging on this conviction. Maybe for you, maybe it's it's a, a commitment to remain faithful to your spouse. Maybe for you, it's a commitment to sort of maintaining financial integrity in everything you do, no matter what. Students, maybe for you, it's deciding not to cheat or or drink underage 
What are these commitments? What are these, these convictions in your life that you are not willing to compromise on? Now, here's the thing. Having convictions is one thing, okay? It's great to have convictions. It's, it's wonderful to be able to say, I will never or I will always, but like the great theologian Mike Tyson once said, everybody has a plan. So they got punched in the mouth. It's all well and good until somebody wheels out the lions. So let's just get to the bottom of this right now. Let's get this figured out. Do you have the courage to stand for your convictions when facing threatening consequences? Come on. Because in your life, when you stand for that which is right, it can put a target on your back. We've talked about this in the very beginning. When you decide to do what's right, particularly in following after Jesus Christ, the enemy will rear his ugly head. Maybe for you, I don't know, maybe, maybe you've got a boss and your boss is just pressuring you to do something that is mm, unethical, shall we say? And if you refuse to do it, you can lose your job and you need your job. Maybe you're a student and you got friends who are, they're just doing things that you know. Come on, you know. Your parents would not want you involved with, but if you don't do it, you could lose your friends. And at this point in life, I get friends are everything. So what do you do? I mean, just for a moment, think about all of the potential consequences that could occur from doing the right thing. Loss of a job, loss of friends, facing criticism, death by lions if you're Daniel. Now I want you to ask yourself, I mean, I really want you to ask yourself, are there any consequences that God can't handle? I love how Darius yells into the cave and goes, was your God able to save you? Able, bro. God made the lions. Come on. Honestly, though, if God has called you, if God has challenged you to do the right thing, do you really think he's going to hang you out to dry afterwards? Uh, you're on your own. This is not me saying that everything's going to work out just like you thought it would. But do you think, honestly, do you think, even if you do lose that job for doing the right thing, even if you do lose those friends for doing the right thing, that God isn't going to shower you with blessings in some bigger or better way? With all that we know about our God? I mean, today's incredible story teaches us that when you do what's right, you can trust God with the results. Scripture says, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good of those who love God. And when you remain faithful to God, when you choose to do what's right, even when the world's against you, God will remain faithful to you. And ultimately, you will be blessed in this life or the next. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity that we could come here today and talk about this incredible story. Not every single one of us 
Lord, even those who are younger in the audience, it, it's, it's hardest for them. But every single one of us faces challenges every single day to do that which is right. And it just seems like everything comes against us. God, I pray that you would give us courage to stand strong in our convictions. I pray, Lord, that if opposition does rear its head in our decision to follow you and to remain faithful to you, Lord, I pray that you would rescue us in a miraculous way. And God, I pray that in standing strong for you, if you choose to save us, Lord, or even if you choose not to, I just pray that your name is glorified and your son is honored throughout this world because of our choice to remain obedient to you, even in the small things. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.